Welcome back. You know, if somebody wanted to rob me, I've not seen my phone or my wallet. I don't have a key to my housing. I keep the door open. I am so vulnerable this week. Are you the same? I just throw it down. Is this, it, it's as if I, I don't know. I just trust everybody at Gold Lake as if there are no evil people here. <laughs> I mean, it's like visible. My housing has no curtains, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you can look in and see. Now, they're not going to get a flat screen, <laughs> but they'll get some headphones, the Cadillac Escalade kind. Hey, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I hope you've seen the journey we've been on. So we opened up Sunday morning with our awesome God. Then this morning we saw the triune God. Now we're going to look at what it means to walk with God. Then tomorrow night we're going to look at the expansion of God. From the early church to modern missions, how has God expanded His glory? Then we're going to look at the mission of God. Then we're going to look at the task of God. And so, uh, again, as I mentioned Sunday morning, I want this whole week to kind of focus on God and what He's doing and what He is doing in our life. So that's where we're going. Now, um, on the back table back there, there are resources. There's two books. And here's what I want to do, okay? This is my gift to you guys, all right? Because, I, again, I haven't seen my wallet. I don't care. I don't take cashless. That was funny. Um, you know, if I just say my last name at your book table, are we good? <laughs> you know? And so here's what I would love to do, okay? This is called the Todd Aaron Optional Reading Plan. If you've enjoyed any of the sessions, um, the first book is called The Abrahamic Revolution, all right? This is the first uh, six chapters is on God's big picture mission in our life. The middle section is every major world religion how they view sin, salvation, and the afterlife, and how you can share the gospel with them. And the last section is on the global Christian lifestyle. I called it the Abrahamic Revolution, and you'll learn more about why I titled it that later. Um, then this other book is called In This Generation. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the expansion of God. And this is about the history of how God's moved and obstacles and excuses when He encounters mankind. And so it's called, In This Generation, uh, Looking to the Past to Reach the Present. Now, what I want to do, this is, this is my deal with you, is this. I have a business card back there, okay? Take my business card and grab the books. Just grab two of them, all right? Put my business card in the books. Take them home. Read the books. If you're like, man, those were good books. Let's pay for them. Then take out my business card and send me a check. If you're like, those were horrible, I want a refund. Well, you didn't pay for them anyway, okay? So deal with the horribleness of them. If you get home and you're like, you know, this guy's like 15, I've got 15 books before this guy, I'm going to prepay in hopes that I like the books. Then send me a check to my address. All proceeds of all of my books have always gone to needy children. It's just all my needy children live in my house, okay? So, <laughs> but it all goes to needy children. Then, here's what else is a bonus, okay? What else is a bonus is this. 
The bottom of my business card is my email. Now, if you email me and say, Dear Todd, send me all your PowerPoint slides, Glenda. I'm not going to send you anything, and I'm going to delete your message. If you say, Dear Todd, send me the PowerPoint slides on the triune God, the expansion of God, the mission of God, and you tell me the titles, I will send you all PowerPoints for any talk you want. Because I know it's hard to take notes, and no one even has pens, okay? So, is that a deal? Do you like that deal? If you don't like the deal, then that's okay. Don't take the deal. But if you like the deal, it's a good deal. Grab the card. What do you do? Put it in the book. Take it home. Email me. If you email me and say, I want all your PowerPoint slides, what am I going to say? I'm going to delete. You might be like, he didn't get back to me. Well, what did you say, honey? I just said, send me all the slides. Well, he told you to get specific. Well, I don't remember the titles of the talk. Well, he told you the titles of the talk. They were Awesome God, Triune God, Walking with God. If you're like, slow down. Okay, hang on. The Awesome God, or Our Awesome God, the Triune God, Walking with God, the Expansion of God, the Mission of God, the task of God, okay? There we go. If you get close, I'm not going to be like, he asked for the Trinity. <laughs> Forget him. I don't even know what talk he's referring to. That could have been any one of my plethora of options, <laughs> you know? Now, the second thing I'd like to say is this. Uh, what I find joy in every week, I'm at a different church in America. And I'm speaking, and what I love more than anything else, if you have any sort of clout, if, you, if, you're, if your pastor knows your first name or if your mission pastor knows who you are, that means you have clout with your church, okay? If you want to take this brochure in the back, it's called Mission Revolution, and if you want to go to your missions pastor or your pastor and say this, hey, I just came from Gold Lake. I would love, to, I think this guy would be great for our church. What I would love to do is I'd love to fly in on a Sunday morning, I'd love to speak at your church on the mission of God, and then I'd love to give three optional sessions, either on how to reach the world, what's going on in the world, the task remaining, the global Christian lifestyle, the history of missions. Just because I'm there, it's fun to do three optional sessions. So anyway, we call this ministry that we founded, we call it Mission Revolution. And again, it's just something that we love to do to come into your church if you have, you know, clout with your pastor. If you need to grab like five and give them to your elders, that's fine. So just know that's there. Missions pastors or, <laughs> yeah, the question and answer session is actually later, sir. <laughs> You're disturbing me. Um, actually, <laughs> hey, Brandon, come on up here, brother. Here you go. You get the first. <laughs> Thank you right there. Uh, yeah, the business card's in there. And go, no, I don't. I don't. Okay. <laughs> now, Brandon brings up a great point, and that is there's a green bucket back there, okay? And so there's going to be a time where there's a Q&A session at Gold Lake. Now, I've been to some Q&A sessions, and they've been really lame, and I've been to Q&A sessions. They've been amazing. The problem is you don't know which one you're getting into. So ever since I started speaking this year, what I've decided to do, again, that was funny, but you guys missed it. I mean, um, 
what I decided to do is this. Hey, if you have questions throughout the week or like tonight, if you want to just think of a question, whether it revolves around a talk or whatever, uh, write the question down and drop it in the green bucket. And then Tuesday night, I'm going to stay up until 1, and I'm going to answer your questions. And then we're going to come here, and, and I'm going to... That way we have good questions that I've been able to like think through, pray through, ask around, get counsel, Google. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> how do you share the Trinity with a Muslim? <laughs> you know, Siri. <laughs> um, so the green bucket back there is for your questions. Now, if there is no paper in the bucket, we will not do Q&A. If there is paper in the bucket, we'll do Q&A. But we, you're going to stay in here anyway, so, you know, you might as well. Again, just ponder it, think about it. If you have any questions, tear off a piece of paper, jot it down, throw it in there, all right? Um, I've been married for 17 years, and I remember my wife and I, um, we, we, um, we started dating. She loved going on walks, okay? And, you know, I, I didn't really get the point, because I'd be like, she'd be like, let's go on a walk. I'm like, okay, where to? And she's like, well, let's just walk. I'm like, well, where? And she's like, well, let's just walk around the neighborhood. I'm like, why? You know, am I fat? I mean, I just need to know, like, you know, Why? And she's like, well, no, I just want to be with you. Let's go on a walk. And so we would walk for like a block. And I'd be like, babe, if we're not going anywhere, do we really need to walk? Or can't we just stand, you know? And so we got in this whole debate over standing or walking, standing or walking. And so eventually, here's no joke. Eventually, we would walk to one mailbox and stand and hug. And then we would walk to the next mailbox and stand and hug. It's funny. Some guys are like, dude, we do that. And so eventually we just called it our stocks, half stand, half walks. And so we'd be like, hey, can we go on a stock? And like, yeah, let's go on a stock. And so, um, because for me, the point was, the entire point was the destination. Where are we going? And guys get like that. We road trip to LA and all along the way, my wife, as we, you know, it's, it's like a three days, but with five kids, it's like seven days just to get there. And uh, my wife, every time we got in the van, we'd put on Willie Nelson on the road again. We'd turn it up. Our kids would love it. And we would pray first. And then, um, that was funny too. You guys got to get with it, man. <laughs> we had VeggieTales. And, uh, and, and my wife would whisper in my ear, now, babe, it's not about the destination. It's about being together as a family. You know, and, and what I realized was it really is about being together. And in our walk with God, what happens is the average Christian receives Christ as a destination issue. We don't want to go to hell. I need eternal security. I'm going to receive Christ. Now I live like I want to live. And so Christ becomes a box you check off on the eternal life question. And so what happens is the average believer today, if you ask them, how's your walk with God? They talk about something in the past when they were 16 that they did at camp. And, and, and salvation is reduced to a, well, that's what happens in the afterlife. I mean, 18% of Christians say they currently walk with God. I think that's a low number. 18% of Christ's followers say they walk with God. Why? Because all of a sudden salvation in Christianity becomes something we get you to do, to walk the aisle, to pray a prayer, to now go live your life and you're secure. And, and, and what I want to do tonight is just talk about what it means to walk with God day in and day out. I mean, if you think about the country Haiti, 
The country Haiti is 45% Protestant, 55% Catholic, 100% voodoo. How is that possible? Because for the Haitian believer, Christ is someone that I accept for the afterlife, but my son is sick, so I go visit a witch doctor. I mean, Christ doesn't help me in the day in and day out. The most Christian country in all of Africa is Nigeria. The most corrupt country in all of Africa is Nigeria. How? Because for them, Christianity is, again, a box you check. And when I think about even the disciples in Scripture, you know, sometimes we elevate these disciples in Scripture. But, but in reality, Peter, I would argue, Peter didn't understand his ministry until Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius being saved. That's a lot of real estate between John 2 when he starts following Jesus and Acts 10. And, and all, even when you get to like the mark near the, you know, you get to the middle of Christ's ministry at the end of Christ's ministry and you go, man, how did the disciples think of their salvation? Jesus said, the son of man is going to be betrayed in the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. When he was in the house, he asked them, hey, when I was talking about the most important thing in my life that's going to happen, what were you guys, you know, mummering about on the road? And they kept quiet. Why? Because they were arguing about when they get to their destination, who's the most important? I mean, this is Mark 9. That's a lot of ministry. That's probably three years in his ministry when he starts sharing about him being crucified. Again, he's laying out some of the most important things, and, and, and they say, hey, Jesus, but who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And, and the next chapter, Mark chapter 10, look at this. The same thing. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen. When he goes up to Jerusalem, we were going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed, and the chief priests and the chiefs of the law, they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. Three days later again, and what do they do? Then, then, whatever you said didn't matter, then, James and John came, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, you want me to give you a deeper understanding of what I just shared? Do you, want me to give, do you want me to give you a burden for the world? Do you want me to give, give you a heart for me? Deeper roots to engage God? No, no, no. Well, what do you want me to do for you? Well, we want to be the most important when we get to the destination. Do you mind? I mean, this is the disciples. This is the disciples. And we miss it too. We, if, if the disciples missed it, trust me, isn't it easy for us to miss it? I was meeting with a guy named Tony, and uh, man, Tony, great guy, Christian. And I, I would give him things, and I'd encourage him to share his faith, and I'd encourage him to read the Bible, and I just got nothing from him. And so finally, I just asked Tony, I asked him, I said, hey, Tony, when do you think eternal life begins? He said, what? I said, when do you think eternal life begins? And he said, well, it begins when I die. And I'm like, oh, you think eternal life begins when you die? No wonder you're having problems walking with God. Because guess what? Eternal life does not begin when you die. It doesn't. Listen to this passage, John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When does eternal life, this is eternal life. Here it is, you ready? When you know God through Christ. I thought eternal life began when your heart stopped. Eternal life begins when you invite him in your heart. Etern this is eternal life, that they may know you, 
the only true God. It's not about the destination. Every Christian makes it about the destination. You Christian, yes. Tell me your story. I checked a box. You walk with God now. You loving your wife. You loving your kids. You're trying to be godly. You love His Word. Sharing your faith with your coworkers. Uh, no, on every one of those. Why? What does that have to do with the decision I made when I was 14? I am completely confused. Well, it's about knowing Him. That's eternal life. It's the core. Mark chapter 3, 14. I want that to drive us tonight. Mark chapter 3, verse 14. What's it say? Mark chapter 3, verse 14. He appointed the twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with Him and that He might send Him out. There it is. That's walking with God. With Him, sent out. We're with him. Why? So that we can just live in a Christian bubble with a Christian house, Christian car, Christian kids, Christian dog, Christian concerts. No. We're with him so that we might be sent out. With him, sent out. With him, sent out. What does it mean to be with him? Word and prayer. That's the vertical. Word and prayer. And we're going to focus on that. Word and prayer. What does it mean to be sent out? Fellowship and evangelism. There we go. There's your outline. What's it mean to be with him? Word and prayer. What's it mean to be sent out? Fellowship and evangelism. Word and prayer, fellowship and evangelism. Word and prayer, fellowship and evangelism. We're with him, sent out. With him, sent out. So let's just talk about the word. Let's just talk about the word, okay? The average Christian, they own four Bibles. They have three different translations, and they take it for granted. Okay, if you hold this book in your lap, you heard, if you hold the completion in your language, you have more than two-thirds of the planet. I mean, think about that. But a lot of times, it's like we have four or five copies and we yawn. The Bible is the most stolen, the most read, and the most published book on the planet. 44 million copies a year are put in print. And it helped me, when I began to study the other holy books of the other world religions, I had a completely new appreciation for this holy book. Okay, I opened the Quran and I read the Quran three different times. And all of a sudden I'm reading the Quran, the holiest book for the Muslim world, and I'm like, wow, this is, this is the Quran is written over a period of 23 years by one man, Muhammad. It's 114 chapters. There's no prophecy. There's no coherence. The way they put the Quran together is the longest book is first, then the second longest, and the shortest book is last. That's the only way they did it. They didn't put it in chronological order. And I was like, wow, one man wrote the Quran over 23 years, 114 chapters, no prophecy. Okay, well, what about Taoism? I mean, there's 300 million Taoists on the planet today. Their holy book for a Taoist is called the Tao Te Ching. The Tao Te Ching, it was written by their founder named Lao Tzu. And I'm like, okay, well, what, what about Lao Tzu and Taoism? Well, I, as you study Taoism, Lao Tzu was 20 years old in China, didn't get the job he wanted. He fled China, went to the Barbarian Empire, was the, on the border trying to get across to the Barbarian Empire. A border guard stopped him and said, are you a holy man? He said, I think so. He writes down 192 verses, and that became the holiest book for 300 million people. Or I think about the Hindu world, 900 million Hindus on the planet, 900 million Hindus. The holiest book for the Hindu world is called the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavad Gita. 
It's 700 verses. It's the exact same size as the book of Mark. And the last line of the holiest book for the Hindu world, the Bhagavad Gita, the last line in the Bhagavad Gita says this, I think this is true. And you compare those holy books with this book written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 authors on three continents in three languages that talks as equally about loving your neighbor as sin, the afterlife, and hell. Four books are published about Jesus every day. And you go, man, I, I don't want to take this for granted. You know, I, I get convicted. I meet, I meet Christians who've been believers for longer than a year, and they've never read the whole thing. I'm like, this is what we call the Word of God, and you haven't read it in completion? This is the Word of God. When I first became a follower of Christ, I opened my Bible, and I wrote this down on the first page of my Bible. I, I wrote this down. Sin will keep me from the Bible, or the Bible will keep me from sin. And it's as simple as that. When I think about God's word, sin will keep me from the Bible, or the Bible will keep me from sin. Sin will keep me from the Bible. Man, when I'm in sin, when I'm not loving my neighbor, loving my wife, loving my kids, I don't want to read this. But man, when I am, I, wanna, I long for it. Sin will keep me from the Bible, or the Bible will keep me from sin. 2 Timothy chapter 3, a verse that we're very familiar with. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Look at this. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that God's servant may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God-breathed. All Scripture. All Scripture has the breath of God on it. And I'm like, all Scripture, really? Like Leviticus? You know, everybody who starts off, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. Genesis, I fly through Leviticus, I stop in wet cement. You know, and you get through Leviticus, and you have numbers named after well numbering. And so I'm like, really, all Scripture, all Scripture's God-breathed, all Scripture's useful for teaching, rebuking, and all Scripture, even the genealogies. I mean, Matthew, the opening book to the New Testament, starts off kind of lame, 70 names, that's chapter one. And so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot. So I'm like, whose life's ever changed by the genealogies? Most of us see Matthew one and go, sweet, I'm already on Matthew two. (laughs) That was fast, I know. Whose life's ever been changed by a genealogy? And then all of a sudden I found out about a woman named Joanne Shetler Joanne Shetler, she moves to the Philippines as a single woman missionary. She's with Wycliffe Bible Translators. She wants to translate the scripture into this tribe in the Philippines. They have no, no gospel. So she's like, I'll start with the New Testament. She starts with Matthew. She comes to Matthew chapter 1 to translate. She's like, what? 70 names. She's like, I almost skipped it because like, let's just start in Matthew 2. But she's like, no, I want to be true to scripture. So she starts translating these names. The village tribe leader named Amma meets Joanne Shetler, and, and, and he reads Matthew 1, and he's like, wait a minute. I thought we came from rocks and banana plants. You mean this is where we came from? And the village tribal leader, Amma, wrote out on a huge piece of paper, there's a picture in her book about it, the genealogies went person to person, hut by hut, 
and started a church based on the genealogies? Joanne Shetler wrote a fabulous book about the experience. You know what she called it? Here it is. And the word came with power. She had no idea the power of genealogies. And the word came with power. Get it, read it by Joanne Shetler. Look at Psalms 19, what it says about God's word. What's interesting about Psalms 19 is the first six verses are all about his creation. What we talked about during our awesome God. I love one of the passages. I think it's verse three of Psalms 19. The sun comes out like a bride, bridegroom ready, shining. I mean, the first, the first six verses are about the awesomeness of creation. Then from seven to the rest of the chapter, the rest of the end of the chapter is the awesomeness of the word. And it's compared creation. What you see, what you long for out there is the same as in here, the awness of it. Look at this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I mean, think about it, man. What are we passionate about? Many people aren't passionate about anything. It revives the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. You ask a non-believer questions about the afterlife, and they're like, oh, I don't know. I think it's like this, maybe like this. You ask a believer who loves God's word about the afterlife, and the, God's word has made wise the simple. We're simple people. We don't know much. I learned to write in cursive when I was like nine. That's a long time. We're simple people. But look at this. It makes wise the simple. When you read God's word, all of a sudden you can you can begin to interact with people and, and, and say, man, I know this is true. Or that the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Would, would your spouse or your friends at work classify you as someone who loves God's Word? Man, I know you're walking with God because you love God's Word. Again, it's not about the destination. It's about the walk. Jesus called us to be with him that we might be sent out. With him, word and prayer, sent out, fellowship and evangelism. Let's talk about prayer. When you think about prayer, everyone prays, right? Congress prays, Muslims pray, Hindus pray. You don't just pray to pray. We pray to know God. We pray to know God. Psalms, one, what is it, 119? I love the Lord, 116, I love the Lord because he hears my voice. I love the Lord. Seven billion people on the planet, but God recognizes us when we pray. I have a friend of mine named Keith. He had a son. He took him to a loud concert. His son lays his head on his chest in the middle of the concert. He's like, are you falling asleep? He looks down. His son looks up and says, no, dad, I'm trying to see if I can hear your heartbeat in the midst of the noise. And my friend Keith is like, that is a picture of prayer. In the midst of noise and chaos in life, we want to see if we can hear the heartbeat of God. That's prayer. The story of Elisha in James chapter 5. We know that story, right? Elisha wanted Israel to repent, so he prays that it doesn't rain. James in the New Testament picks up on this and says, Elisha was a man like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Elisha was a man just like us. He prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain. It go, you know, James goes out of his way to say Elisha's a man just like us. Why? Because we know, we're like, well, that was different. That was pre-Google. You know, God's just different today. He knows that believers today are quick to justify, oh, that's not us. That's not today. He's like, no, Elisha was just like you. He had problems. You know, he, he had issues. He lacked people skills. He was a loner. High maintenance, self-absorbed. He's like, man, this is like me, you know? 
not a people-pleasing person. And um, James says he was a man just like us. When we pray, do we believe that we can change the office we live in? Do we believe that our neighbors can come to Christ? Do we believe that our children can start walking rightly? Do we believe that the prodigal child can come home? Or are we praying for a bigger savings account, a better job, and a better lake house? I mean, that's, you know, sometimes what we, we end up praying. Elisha was a man just like us. During the time of Napoleon, after he conquered uh, Europe, he, um, he went island by island in the Mediterranean, conquering different islands. Napoleon got to one island and he told his soldiers, this will be a very difficult island to conquer. We will lose many men in the battle. Eventually, after they lost many men in the battle, Napoleon conquered the island. The, the, the generals were celebrating in Napoleon's tent at the end of the battle when in comes this battered soldier. He comes in and he requests to speak to Napoleon. Napoleon summons for him to come forward. And the soldier looks at Napoleon and says, give me this island. The other generals begin to laugh. Who is this guy? Napoleon requested a piece of paper and granted the request. The soldier left with the request in hand. The generals were like, who is this guy? What happened? Wait, what? Napoleon looked at the generals and said this, the reason I granted his request was because I was honored by the magnitude of it. The reason I granted his request was because I was honored by the magnitude of it. Man, when I look at my prayer life and my small prayers and the things I'm asking God for, God must be like, man, you really have a lack of understanding of my capacity. And it's true. Ephesians 3.20, what a a passage. Now him who is able to do, Ephesians 3.20, him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Man, what are we praying for? What are we asking God for? He called the 12 to be with him, but also that they might be sent out. With him, word and prayer, word and prayer. How are you doing? Of being with him. We know we need to be with him, but how, how are you being with him? How would your spouse, your coworkers, how would your neighbors? But then sent out, sent out in fellowship and evangelism. Fellowship and evangelism. Let's talk about fellowship. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and I thought, you know what? I, uh, I need to clip out. I heard, that, you know, uh, someone said to me, oh, when you go in, you have your first year where you can clep out of classes if you feel like you excel in that. And I was like, well, what did you clep out of? And he's like, oh, Hebrews. And I'm like, yeah, that's not me. You know, he's like, I also clepped out of Greek. I'm like, okay, that's not me either. You know, I don't, para is like, what, alongside? I mean, that's, I don't know. So I'm, he's like, well, go and look. You can clep out of something. And I was like, well, how much is it to clep out? And he's like, well, it's $50. And I'm like, well, it's worth it, you know. So I go to the registrar's office, and I'm like, hey, I'd like to clap out. And she's like, what? And I was like, well, what is there, <laughs> you know? And she's like, well, normally you know before you come in here. And I was like, well, I just, you know. 
And she's like, well, um, here's the list of the courses you have to have. And no joke, one course said spiritual life. Dude, done. Done. Spiritual life? Come on. I have a quiet time. I'm good, <laughs> you know. How hard could this possibly be? So I said, I'll clip out of spiritual life. I fill out the form. I pay my $50. And I said, can I get the test? And she's like, oh, spiritual life is different. There's no test. It's a one-on-one interview with the professor. And then he determines if you clip out. (laughs) I'm like, can I get a refund? She's like, no, you know. And so I walk in. I forgot the professor's name. I walk in. And, uh, you know, the classic, like, books everywhere, stacked, a stack of hymnals that he's translated. I'm like, really, hymnals? And um, uh, I sat down, and he turned around in his chair. Todd Aaron, yes. Uh, I, you know, what I like to do with students is I ask them one question. And based on the answer to that one question, I determine whether or not you're clept out of spiritual life. I'm like, is it yes or no? Because I'm thinking I got 50-50. I mean, I'm just so nervous. And he looks at me and he says this, can a person be spiritual in isolation? Can you please repeat that? (laughs) Can a person be spiritual in isolation? And I said, yes. And then fainted. (laughs) I said, yes, they can. If you have a Bible and you're in a cave, you can be spiritual and please God. He said the answer is no. Does that mean I don't pass? <laughs> I got another. No, I didn't get any of them right. He said no, a person cannot be spiritual in isolation. And I thought about that because you know what? The average Christian thinks they can be spiritual in isolation. I mean, I, I thought I nailed it. Yes. Best answer. I'm flying to Dallas. I sit next to a lady named Cher. I start a spiritual conversation with her. You a Christian? Yes. Where are you from? Iowa. Where do you go to church in Iowa? I was just in Des Moines. I don't go to church. Well, why not? Well, why do I need to go to a building to be spiritual? Why do I need to have other people tell me what to do to know God? We've all heard it. And I'm like, share. When a person becomes a follower of Christ, we all have blind spots. We have blind spots and we have baggage, habits and issues. And if not for other believers who sharpen us, share with us, and are honest with us, we can't fully understand and obey God. I was like, share. I think over 25 times it says one another, even in just Romans, love one another, consider one another, be kind to one another, spur one another on. 
pray for one another. Bless one another. I said, share. If you just had a Bible and you're on an island, you can't obey half of it because half of the Bible is about you and others. And I think we just don't realize that. People are like, man, I got my Bible. I got my cubby hole. I don't need other people. And we feel like we can be spiritual in isolation. I mean, half the commands have to do with you and I with each other. But I reduce fellowship to the parking lot as I'm leaving and going to Qdoba's. Because, you know, I just don't have time. I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing. Do I really want to be in a community group? Do I want people to know me? A friend of mine is always telling me, Todd, you need community. You, don't, you need community. Don't find community when your life hits chaos. Have it before then. You need community. And that just kind of rang a bell. Because I think it's like, until chaos comes, I don't feel like I need community. He's like, Todd, don't find community when, when you have chaos. It doesn't work. Think about the one another's. How many times? Acts chapter 2 is the church gathers together. These new believers, what happens? Those who accepted his message were baptized, about 3,000. They devoted themselves immediately. They gathered together. They gathered together to hear the teaching, to fellowship, and the breaking of the bread. You know those Planet Earth movies? Those Planet Earth movies or uh, like the Discovery Channel? You watch those and you turn them on with the kids? We've all seen like the three lions creeping up on the pack of a thousand deer. Oh no, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden the deer see the lion and what happened? The thousand run. And there's a rule. The dough that peels off always dies. You with me? The pack, a little dough, and <laughs> my kids are like, run, dough, run. <laughs> I'm like, guys, once he peeled off, game over. <laughs> you know, run, dough, run. The dough that peels off, you're safe in the pack, right? I mean, <laughs> but you peel off, you die. Compare the thousand deer and the one that peels off with the Arctic walrus. When the great white shark comes to attack the Arctic walrus, they turn their backs outward. It's a shield of armor, and they circle up, and they can, no one can get in. And after trying and trying and bloodying his nose, the great white shark's like, where's the loner seal not expecting me? How many followers of Christ are the little doe that says, no thanks, church, no thanks, community, no thanks, accountability, no thanks, other people in my life speaking, I don't need you. The one that peels off dies. Remember the story of Aaron Ralston? Aaron Ralston, a 27-year-old mountain climber, very trained, is climbing in the Utah Canyon 27 years old, Aaron Rawlson goes out by himself. He's got a flashlight, a GoPro, and a pocket knife. And he's climbing in the canyons at Utah Canyon, and, and all of a sudden some boulders shift. He catches himself, but a huge boulder comes down on his arm, and he's trapped. He said after 24 hours, he lost complete blood flow in his hand. He could see it. After three days, insects had eaten most of his fingers. 
on day six, he decided he had to cut off his arm. But all he had was a pocket knife. So he cracked his ulna, cracked his radius, and began going through it. He wrote a book about his experience between a rock and a hard place. That wasn't funny. You guys are so sinful, it's not even. <laughs> he wrote a book between a rock and a hard place. And as I was, as I was reading that, I was thinking about, I was thinking about how, man, doesn't life, doesn't life provide that, doesn't life create that rock that cuts you off? It cuts you off from, from fellowship. I mean, how much things in your life, busyness, more children, I mean, just life, bills, another job. What in your life cuts you off? And what happens is over time, once you get cut off, guess what? Sin creeps in, you lose sensitivity to God, you decay morally, you begin to die spiritually. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, Hebrews 10, 25 says this, let us not give, it, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And there's a lot of people in the habit of doing it. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more, especially as you see the return of Christ, especially as you see the day approaching. I don't know how involved you are back home in your fellowship, in your church, in your community. I don't know who has the ability to speak in your life. I know it's a difficult thing and it's hard to find, but I just want to beg you as I'm begging myself now, don't let that life cut you off. Don't let it cut you off. He called the 12 together, Mark chapter 3, that they might be with him, that he might send them out. He called them together, they might be with him, word and prayer, that they might be sent out, fellowship and evangelism. Did you know 95% of Christians have never led someone to Christ and 93% have never tried? 95% of Christians have never led someone to Christ. 93% have never tried. I think about it in my own life. I like it when people come to Christ. I just don't like sharing my faith. <laughs> you know, I love it. Oh, I love hearing your testimony. Oh, my goodness. Who? There's always a name in the testimony. I love that. It's just it's never my name. Why? There's something about sharing my faith that causes me to be like, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't want to bring up hard concepts. I don't want to make people uncomfortable. I don't want to rock the boat. I want to be sensitive. So I pull back and I'm like, oh, I just, I, I, I just, I don't have that gift and I justify my inactivity. But I think in the, when it's all said and done, kind of what I said Sunday morning, the reason a lot of followers of Christ don't share their faith is image management. How people view us is the most important thing in our life. I mean, we spend a lot of time dressing the part, looking the part, acting the part, dressing the part, looking the part, acting the part. And so evangelism just disturbs that. And people begin to view us like, well, wait, you're telling me that you believe this, this, and this. That's counter to culture, me, and my understanding. And so what happens is we shrink back and we say, man, I, I, I don't want to share my faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 
We have this treasure in jars of clay. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, I can't share my faith. I don't know all the answers. I can't share my faith. I just screw it up. I can't share my faith. I look like an idiot. I can't share my faith. I am an idiot. I can't share my faith because they've seen me. I've gone to the bars after work and gotten drunk and they've seen me as a sin issue. I'm disqualified. But God says this, guess what? God says, I have set this treasure, look at this, in what? Gold, silver, costly vessel. That's where you put treasure. God says, no. I've put the treasure of the gospel that the Father initiates salvation, completed in the Son, striking you with the Spirit. I've put that treasure, guess where? In jars of clay. This would have shocked today's reader. This would have shocked the reader of their day. You put this in jars of clay? Why would you put such a costly thing in a jar of clay? Think about us, broken, confused, depressed, unsure. He says, I've put this treasure in you. Why? That I might show this all-surpassing power from God. And so as God calls us to step out and share our faith, with our coworkers, neighbors, and friends, who we all know is well overdue to hear, our heart's going, oh man, we're nervous. You never get over that. The question is, will you value God over image management? That's why, I think, how, could God, how many ways could God reach the world? A ton. But he puts the message in us to see, do you value me more than image management? And most of us, if we're honest, say we, we, we don't value you more than image management. I value me more than you, God. And so we shrink back and we don't share. I was, I was speaking to a church. The pastor got up after and said, hey, you know, now that Todd spoke, let's try evangelism again this week. It would be great if people actually showed up. He's like, we have never had people show up for evangelism. He's like, I can get people to show up for community groups, softball leagues, and cookouts but I can never get people to show up to share their faith. They justify their inactivity. And I think about how, how Danny, when he shared the gospel with me when I was 16, how nervous he was. But he risked it. He risked looking like a fool when he asked me about my spiritual life over a game of pool. He invited me to church. He shared the gospel with me. I had a radical conversion that altered who I married, where I live, what I did in life, my passion, my purpose, everything. I'm so glad he risked it. And then it was like, I'm like, okay, I now, now, I now have to risk it. And so the guy I knew I don't want to share with, Matt. I don't want to share with Matt. Matt's not interested. I can bypass Matt. I can go ahead and say, no, Matt. Like, I don't even share the gospel. He's already going to reject it. But I, I knew I needed to share with Matt. So I meet Matt at a coffee shop. I'm sharing Christ with Matt. All of a sudden, something happens, disastrous. His, his friend comes in at the coffee shop. Matt's like, sit down. <laughs> Todd was halfway through sharing this illustration. Damon sits down. I'm like, abort mission. But I'm like, oh, I'm halfway through. I finish, I finish it. Matt says, no thanks. Damon's confused. Two weeks later, I get a call. Damon says, hey, I just want to let you know what Matt said no to, I said yes to. I met my wife at his wedding. He's now a pastor. 
I risked it. I, I, I continue not wanting to. It's a daily issue. It's, you never overcome that. We all love image management. And then in our own life, who risked it for you? Think about that. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a peer. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was a neighbor. But someone risked it for you, and yet you're sitting there saying you're not going to risk it for someone else? You're saying, I'm sorry, the gospel stops with me? No, the gospel came to you because it's on its way to someone else. The gospel came to you because it's on its way to someone else. I'm telling you, there are people who this summer will come to Christ. They'll come to Christ in July and August if you go back home from Gold Lake and risk it. It's a risk. Can't take that out of it. You know the person right now you need to share with. For some of you, it's your mom. For some of you, it's your dad. And those are the hardest, I just want to say. For some, it's your neighbor who you haven't even met. It's a risk. But is it worth the risk? Jeremiah chapter 20. Oh, is this the way we're described? If I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name... His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, indeed, I cannot. We moved to Arkansas nine years ago. Found a great house on the golf course. Had to have it. And... Um, I just, you know, there's nothing like waking up in the mornings, going out with your Yeti cooler filled with coffee, mist on the grass, kids jumping on the trampoline, laughter in the distance, sun rising, birds chirping. Looking out on a green tea box as the day begins. And then one day, it was gone. I go outside with my coffee. I hear my kids on the trampoline. The mist is in my backyard, the sun is rising. But in between my back porch and the, the, the tea box is a huge porto potty with a four-foot sign facing my direction that reads, Potty Time. <laughs> I'm confused. I go out to the gate. I look for construction. Why else would there be a potty time at my back, back, back gate? I see no construction. I go into my house. I ponder as I continue to peer at the green potty time. I set my cooler of coffee down. I grab my keys. I drive to the golf shop. 
I go into the golf shop manager Taylor's office. I greet him in the morning. I say, Taylor, there's a porto potty with potty time that I see everywhere. He said, well, there's no bathroom on the back nine. And so we got together and voted your hole needs, hole 14 obviously needs a restroom, but we, we don't have the money right now, nor will we ever, to pipe in plumbing. So as of now, it's not going to move. I go back to my car, drive to the garage, go into my office, grab a piece of paper and a clipboard. And I go door to door, 45 houses down, asking to sign this petition I titled, Move That Potty. <laughs> I go down my street, knocking on the door of neighbors, people I've never met. I mean, I'm 20 doors down, ringing a doorbell, handing them a clipboard, and talking about a porto potty. And to me, it made perfect sense because I valued my view of my backyard. My wife's like, what are you doing? You're not even in our neighborhood anymore, but you're still getting petitions. I'm like, this is a civil issue. <laughs> I take it back to Taylor. I'm like, Taylor, here's 75 signatures. He's like, well, I guess we'll have to consider it. I leave the golf course manager's pro shop office. I get to the first step of the pro shop and conviction falls on me. I sat down on the steps of the pro shop as God begins to challenge me. It took a porto potty messing up your view to go door to door to meet your neighbors, to sign a petition, but not once in nine years did you do it for the gospel. It took messing your view with a porto potty to see what you truly valued, didn't care if you looked like a fool, and began to ring the doorbell to get to know people. But not one time did you value my gospel. And isn't that true with us? If we value it, we embrace it and engage it. But how often do you value word, prayer, fellowship, evangelism, with him to be sent out, with him to be sent out. So, Father, we just pray that that would, that would be us uh, as, as we consider how we approach you and your throne and, 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 and walking with you. I just pray that it would seal our understanding that it's not just about a destination, but it is about walking with you. I just pray in my own life, Lord, you'd bring community fellowship. I pray I would be able to share the gospel with, with, I know the people you're laying on my heart. Lord, give me a hunger for your word, a desire to pray big things that you might be honored in light of the request, Lord. We just ask this in your name. Amen.